It is so good to be able just to sing praises to our living God and stand in his grace for all that he's done and for who he is. And so as we're just standing in awe of God and in honor of his word, I'd like to read from Psalm 96. It says this, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. So would you be seated as we just go before the Lord now in a time of prayer and and before I begin, I just want you to know, in case you are unaware, that Gail Bowers, just a dearly loved saint, uh, a part of our body of believers here, has made her entrance into glory. And we are going to be having uh, the visitation this afternoon from 4 to 6 at the Lakeshore Funeral Home. And then tomorrow, Monday morning, 10 a.m., uh, we will be having a service uh, in her honor. And so I would like to ask if each of you would just be mindful of praying for the Bowers family and their extended family, all who are part of Fellowship Bible Church, uh, as we lift them up and ask for God's comfort. And to think of Gail's legacy, how much she loved the Lord, the Word of God, and just cherished family. And so as we go to the Lord now in prayer, let us be mindful of these things. Lord, you are awesome and gracious. You are the God who is the Lord over all the earth, and we bless your name. So would you do that right now? Just bless the character of God by speaking of his attributes and thanking him for who he is. Would you praise him for his salvation, how he's given you redemption, forgiveness, real relationship with himself through Christ. Would you praise him that he is the God of the nations? That he is accomplishing his work in every people, every tribe, every tongue. As he's drawing people to himself through Jesus Christ, bringing reconciliation, rejoicing, and that we are gathering with saints around the world to worship him. Would you praise him for this? And for the times that we have not walked in the reverence of God, and sin has been so alluring, and we've transgressed the way, would you right now just confess any sin that the Spirit of God brings to your mind? He loves you unconditionally in Christ. Would you ask God to cultivate that just sweet fellowship that just comes from resting in and rejoicing in him? And would you now specifically bring your request to the Lord? Lord, we want to pray for the Bowers family, their extended family, for all of us who are grieving. And yet we grieve with the hope of the gospel and the promise of Christ 
to think of Gail in the presence of a king. What a glorious thought and a certain reality. Lord, we thank you for her love and her life and all that she has meant to us. And we look forward to one day worshiping you with her in eternity. Would you right now pray for racial reconciliation, true reconciliation in our country? That we would see every person made in the image of God and treat them accordingly. Would you pray for our government leaders at every level, local, state, federal? Would you ask God to give them wisdom, integrity, salvation, and justice for all? Lord, it is an absolute delight to worship you. And so, God, we're asking now that as we turn to your word, that once again your spirit would be our teacher that you would take the truths of Scripture and you transform us, especially on this critical subject that your son addressed. And so we asked expectantly, in Jesus' name, amen. If you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 12, and as you do, I want to ask this question, how do kingdom citizens relate to God and government? For about 2,000 years, this topic has been strongly debated. There are very widespread differing views as to how do believers in Christ really interface with the government. And that is exactly the subject that Jesus is going to tackle when we look at Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Just to kind of bring you up to speed as we've been making our way through the gospel of Mark, the leadership of the Jewish nation have had it with Jesus. He must go. He's disrupting everything. They think that if his ministry continues, it'll lead to Rome just kind of putting the hammer down and crushing them as a nation. Furthermore, he is taking their places of authority. He is directly confronting them. They're losing their influence. The people are flocking to him, and they have had it. And so it is at this Passover celebration, it's the Wednesday before the Friday of the Passover where Jesus will go to the cross that Jesus is teaching in the temple. Thousands of people would be gathered around him, listening to his every word. And it is on this occasion that the Jewish leadership believes that by asking him questions that cannot be answered, they will not only trick Jesus, but they will trip him up and that they will, it'll lead to his demise. And they have tried unsuccessfully. But at this point, they believe they have the silver bullet a question that Jesus cannot respond to without leading to the people abandoning him or Rome crucifying him. And so we find the silver bullet they think will lead to a catastrophic result to Jesus being asked and presented here. Take a look, Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Then they, speaking of the Jewish leadership, sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. There really could hardly be a more unlikely and divergent partnership. The Pharisees and the Herodians. 
On one hand, you have the Pharisees, literally means the separated ones. These are the ones that held to the traditions, the law of Israel. They would try to follow all these many regulations that they had placed upon the law. They themselves were found it almost impossible to do, and they were always looking down, scorning everyone else who simply couldn't keep the law and all of the traditions. And they had one hand, they didn't like Rome, they opposed Rome, but they did it in a rather cautious resistance. On the other hand, if you've got the Pharisees over here, you've got the Herodians. Even their name gives you away. They wanted to be as accommodating as possible to Herod and to Rome. They were interested in influence. They were liberal, syncristic in their beliefs. They would adopt whatever would be accommodating to an agenda that would allow them, to, they believed, to flourish in Rome, hence even their name. And the Pharisees and the Herodians had nothing to do with one another. They were on the opposites on every single issue but one, and that was the issue of Jesus. They both believed he had to go. You've heard the old ancient adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You ever heard that? And that's exactly what we've got going on here. And notice they came to trap him. This word only appears once in the New Testament. And it was used of a hunter who was capturing an animal or a fisherman who was catching fish. They aren't coming as those who have legitimate questions and really want to know, as true seekers of understanding. They have every intent to capture him. And so... They come and and look at how they set this up. You want a classic example of what flattery looks like and what a setup is about to take place? Look at verse 14. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. And here it is. Is it lawful? to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not. They come as those who genuinely want understanding. They want to be seen as the shepherds of Israel. They show all sorts of pseudo-deference and respect to Jesus. They They come to him as a teacher, a title of respect, and yet they have no respect for him. They actually highlight that he is one who speaks truth, and yet... In just a couple of days, they're going to see to it that he's crucified as a blasphemer. You are impartial. You show no deference to anyone. Total setup. And then they fire the question, is it lawful? Is it permissible according to the law for us to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now, a poll tax, sometimes it's referred to as a head tax, was all directly tied to the census. Everywhere that Rome would go, when they conquered, as they expanded their empire, they would have these mandatory census times where they would count all of the people. And it's on that basis that they would start figuring out how how much tax they could actually draw out of different regions. And the poll tax, the head tax, was based on a census. And so every year, every person had to pay this head tax or the poll tax. It was a denarius, and that's what was owed. But I want you to know that the Jewish people absolutely hated 
the taxations that they had to pay, especially the poll tax, because it spoke of their subjugation to Rome, that Rome dominated them, owned them, that they, by paying this tax, it funded all of these pagan temples throughout the empire that they absolutely abhorred, these worship of these false gods, and they had to pay for it. And furthermore, the upper class of Rome was funded through taxes like the poll tax. So the Jewish people found it absolutely abhorrent. They wanted nothing to do with this. And so they believe that they can ask a question that will trip Jesus up. And this is a loaded question. Because the whole, the whole uh, question about taxation was an explosive issue throughout Israel. To give you just a little bit of history to show you just how uh, explosive this was, in 86, there was a Jewish uh, leader from Galilee named Judas. He founded this group called the Zealots. By the way, one of the 12 of Jesus' men is Simon the Zealot. He was a part of that following. Now, in 86, uh, Judas was then completely put down by Rome, and they crushed him. In fact, you remember in Acts chapter 5, it is referenced this exact same revolt, and it was all based upon taxation. Of course, Judas was crushed, and he went, and his followers dispersed. But this issue of taxation would once again simmer and rise to a boiling point in AD 66, where again the Jews said, enough is enough, and we're not paying these taxes. Rome would come in, and from AD 66 to Finishing off in 70, they literally crushed Israel. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was completely demolished. All of the sacrifices, the Jewish worship system, gone because of an issue over taxation. And so they've got Jesus. You see, Jesus can't answer this question and win. If Jesus said, no, you shouldn't pay a poll tax to Caesar, why then, they would just hand him over to the Romans for sedition, for treason, for leading a revolt. Here's another guy from Galilee up in the north. It must be in the water rebellion up there because just like Judas, now we got Jesus and he's saying you shouldn't pay taxes. And they would literally hand him over to the Romans and the Romans, like they would do with anyone for treason, automatic, painful, torturous death. But on the other hand, if Jesus said, um, yes, you should pay the tax, why, the people would turn on him. Because the, the Jewish people hated the taxation system. They were wanting a Messiah, a son of David, who would overthrow Rome, so they didn't have to pay these taxes to the Romans and all their pagan rituals and, and financing the upper class. It is a no-win situation. They think they have Jesus. So look at verse 15. So shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy. <laughs> Jesus sees and knows all things. He reads their hypocrisy in their hearts, just like he sees our heart in this very present time. He said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. 
Why are you testing me? This is the same word that's used in Mark 1.13 where Satan tempts Jesus. Why are you testing me, tempting me? He says, bring me a denarius. See, they're on the Temple Mount. The Jewish people so despise the Roman money, they thought it was propaganda, it, was, it, was just, it just made them ill to even have it, that they would actually exchange their money before they went on to the Temple Mount to do their business and their transactions and their offerings and their giving. And so they would convert it to their own Jewish coin. So no one on the Temple Mount most likely even has a denarius. That's why Jesus says, go bring me one. So some lackey is sent out to go get a denarius from one of the the tables where they're exchanging money. And everybody is waiting and watching to see what is going to happen. Now a denarius, just a small silver coin issued by Rome, um, it was the pay for a common labor for one day's work. It was also the pay for just a regular soldier, a denarius. So think about how much do you make in one day? Don't need to say it out loud. Whatever that is, that's what you'd have to pay annually. Just this poll tax, just one little extra tax, the fun pagan rituals and the upper class of Rome. No big deal. Just pay it. So finally, a denarius is picked up and look at this. Verse 16, they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Whose likeness and inscription is this? So they brought a Tiberian denarius. And if you look at it, and here is actually one of those coins, um, on the front side here, why you have a bust of Tiberius Caesar right there. That's what he looked like. And what it says on the little inscription around the coin, it says, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. It is a declaration of of divinity. He is God. He's deity. And there is his image. And that's what it says on one side. You flip the coin over and guess what? You have Tiberius Caesar's mother, Livia. And she's there and she's pictured sitting on a throne and she has got a crown on. She is holding a scepter in her right hand and in her left hand, she has a palm branch or an olive branch. And on that side of the coin, it says Pontifex Maximus, high priest. This coin says that Caesar is God and he is the high priest. No wonder the Jews hated it. My fingers were just even burning, even touching it. They hated it. And Jesus said, well, whose inscription is this? And they told him, why? Why it's Caesar's. And then look at Jesus' response. They think they have him nailed Verse 17, and Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Render to Caesar. The word render means to pay or to give back. Render to Caesar that which belongs to him, but to God that which belongs to to God. Whose image and inscription is that? It's Caesar's. Then give it to him. He wants it? He wants it back? Give it to him. On the other hand, give to God what is God's. You need to understand that image 
identifies ownership. Image identifies ownership. Now, they were completely amazed at him. I mean, literally, he makes this radical statement that not only gets out of their trap, but it becomes the most singular, most influential political statement ever made. It is decisive and determinative of Western civilization and an understanding of government. It answered the question for those who truly were trusting in Jesus as the Messiah. They were citizens of the kingdom of heaven that they would also have responsibilities to governing authorities on the earth. And just because they're amazed at him does not mean that Jesus has their allegiance. Just stay tuned for a couple of days to see how this all plays out. But Jesus says you've got responsibilities to government. Paul, the apostle, and later Peter would also write about the responsibilities that Christians, kingdom citizens, have to the government. So like in Romans chapter 13, Verse 1, Paul is writing, and he says this. He says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So Paul is writing to Christians, all of which are in the Roman Empire. It is thoroughly pagan. It's wicked. Money is going to fund things that they absolutely would abhor and be completely against. And what does Paul write? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you are to be a subjection into governing authorities. Daniel Webster said this, whatever makes a man a good Christian makes them good citizens. So what is our responsibility to human government? What is a Christian's civic responsibility and their approach to government? I'd like to put it about as simply as I can, and actually in three words. Christians have an obligation and a responsibility to government, and let me tell you what they are. First, we are called to obey. We are to submit to human governments, even thoroughly pagan governments, as long as they are calling us not to violate God's word specifically, we owe them our respect and we are subject to them. So let me tell you what Peter said. First Peter chapter 2, speaking on this issue, verses 13 and 14. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So governors are to punish evildoers... And they are to praise and reward those who are doing what is right. That means that as good citizens, as Christians, we want to honor and glorify God by how we interface and show respect to the government. And at the same time, when we do that, it'll be a testimony of the gospel. It'll show that Christians, even under bad government, can thrive because they're not finding their identity, their sense of well-being, purpose in government. They have found it in God, and they can flourish even in difficult circumstances. And I want you to know, respecting government officials at times will be absolutely challenging. They're going to do things that, that you're going to like, whoa, that is abhorrent. And if you can't respect the individual, you most certainly must respect the office. Why? Because it's been given to us by God. 
So what's our responsibility? We're to obey. We're to show respect. Let me give you a second. We are to pay. We are to pay our taxes. We enjoy the benefits. We need to pay. So remember, Paul is writing. He's writing where? In Romans 13, he's, the name gives it away. He's writing to those in the Roman Empire. And this is what he said. Remember Romans 13, 1? Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Let that sink in. And then he goes on to say, beginning in verse 5 in Romans 13, Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Do you see that? For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Did Jesus, did he pay taxes? He did. In fact, it's recorded, Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. Now, secular governments even if they be thoroughly pagan, real bad, they still provide aspects in which a country can thrive to a degree. So like, for instance, in Rome, they provided the Roman military, which provided the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Not a great peace, but it was a peace. Human beings could flourish. It wasn't a great system. They, had, they provided security, protection. They provided a massive road system. They provided a network for shipping, the ability for goods to be transferred throughout the empire. All of this was supplied by the government, and it has to be paid for. And the text tells us that we are to pay our taxes. We are to render, which literally means to pay a debt, to to pay back. So that's what happened in Rome, but how about today? Now, remember, when you're paying your taxes, you're not giving a gift to the government like, well, okay, I'm going to give a gift to the government. No, you actually owe it. You may not like like what you're having to pay for, but you still owe it. So today, I mean, our fire and police protection, our national defense, the salaries of all the civil servants at all the different levels, those that manage our affairs of state, special programs for the poor, the underprivileged, there's a wide array of programs You may not think that those programs are worthwhile, some of them. Some of you think like they're counterproductive. But nonetheless, there is a government. They are running these to a degree, however efficient that might be, and they require payment. The people running them need to be paid. And so we've got that we are to pay. Now, um, for instance, when it comes to taxes, and I I know this is a difficult issue, and you're like, I pay so much in taxes. But we must. We must pay what we owe. Just like the scripture said, even for conscience sake. By the way, this is God who is calling us to do this in the word. Now, there was one guy I read about that um, his conscience was really kind of stricken by the fact that he had, he had fraud, defrauded the IRS. So apparently he wrote them this short little note uh, to address the situation. And this is what he wrote. He wrote, um, Dear Sir, My conscience bothered me. Here is the $175 which I owe in back taxes. Wow. But then it just had a short little PS. If my conscience still bothers me, 
I will send the rest. Okay? So I'm going to try this 175. There's probably thousands that I still owe you. If I'm still bothered, I'll send the rest. That's a good way to get flagged. You are going to get some other attention from the IRS. Friends, we have some obligations to our government. Any government, whatever citizen, whatever country you're a citizen of, we are to obey, we are to pay, and we are to pray. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, that's a lot, be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So what are we supposed to pray for? Pray that they would have wisdom. Pray for their integrity. Pray for their salvation. Pray that they would bring about justice for all. We should be in earnest prayer. Now, there are two extremes to be avoided when it comes to government. One extreme is to see government as the enemy of God. Okay? Scripture tells us that God actually establishes government. He's over all things, including Caesar, right? So one extreme is like, well, government is the enemy, and you act as such, and you do things that are wrong, disrespectful, and likely sinful. But the other extreme is that government is the savior. It's as if government is God. Government is the solution to all of our problems. We have lots of problems. What we need is a bigger government. The bigger the government, the better. Why? Because we have more opportunity to resolve our problems. And so there's this other extreme. And so you find that these, you got these two ends here, but how is it that Christians, how do we relate to the government? I will tell you this. How we relate to government is based on how we relate to God. That's why we want to understand what the scripture has to say. There is no perfect government. Every government has its shortcomings. You think we have some troubles here in the United States. Well, I can tell you it's a whole lot better than some of the governments in other parts of the world. There will only be one perfect government, and that is when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. He will be absolutely Um, it'll absolutely be a perfect government. Why? Because he is a perfect divine king. In the meantime, we're going to have to settle settle for governments that are going to be less than perfect. Now, it is not wrong to serve in government. In fact, uh, you find scriptural examples of people doing just that. You've got like Joseph in the book of Genesis, Daniel, who's got a major uh, influence over actually in several administrations. You've got a queen by the name of Esther and her uncle Mordecai that demonstrate and have a lot of influence in the Persian Persian Medo Empire. They have influence. They are serving God, but they do so in government positions. It's not wrong to serve government. In fact, um, we need to show respect to the office And we have, especially in the United States, tremendous privilege. We could not only serve in government, if God is so calling us to do so. Furthermore, we have this highly amazing privilege to actually vote for our elected leaders. I believe every Christian should vote because not only is it our civic responsibility and a system of government that God set up, But friends, we can actually choose our leaders. Not every country has that. There are countries like North Korea, for instance, that they can't even imagine what that might look like. 
So we have amazing privileges. And in our country, uh, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, the separation of church and state. You ever heard that? And I think that that is a phrase that is growing in confusion, and I think it's intentional. Now, that phrase, separation from church and state, actually has its origins in Thomas Jefferson when he was expressing the understanding of the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. Are you actually even familiar with the First Amendment? You know how it even begins? It's interesting. I think people are like, "I, I know there is one, but I'm not exactly sure what it says. I think that's actually by design. Because I think we're moving to a place where we don't want people to really know what it says. But let me just read to you how it begins. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. See, religious liberty means freedom for religion, not freedom from religion and the expressions of those who are people of faith. The concept of of separation of church and state really gives a legal right for free people to freely express their religious faith. That's what the First Amendment allows. I mean, what an amazing privilege we have in this country. It means that we have the free exercise that a free people can have a faith, you may have a faith, and you may freely express it. You can freely express it in public, and it is not subject to the government coming down on you or coercing you. You have this amazing freedom. That's what God has given us. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians should be in any way involved in anarchy. Like if you don't like something, or you think that there's been some misjustice here, or you're really, really unhappy with how things are going down, that you participate in burning down buildings, taking the law into your own hand, uh, you're going to establish your own little rugged um, and rogue justice. No, you can't do that. The only time a Christian would ever be in a position to actually engage in legitimate disobedience to the state would be as if this, when it commands something contrary to the law of God or it forbids something commanded by the word of God. And it has to be absolutely clear, not just something you might feel, but clearly stated in scripture. And we actually have examples of that in scripture. So like in the book of Exodus, you have these midwives and Pharaoh says, listen, I want you to kill every single Jewish boy. They're overrunning us. Those midwives, did they do it? No, they did not. Why? They knew that life came from God, and they wouldn't have it. Um, Let me give you another example. Remember Daniel? And at one point, there was an edict in the empire that you could only pray to the king. And Daniel's like... I don't think so. I've got a long-term pattern of knowing the king, the, the one true king, and I will continue my pattern of prayer to God. Edict or not, I'll take whatever consequences they throw at me. And they did. They threw him into a den of lions, but God preserved him. Let me give you another example. Daniel, he had some friends that had courage, convictions, faith, You might know their names. You heard them? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that? 
And the king had said, listen, we're going to have a great national festival. I have this huge statue. Here I am in statue form. I've got all the orchestras gathered together. When they play the music, you bow down. And everybody did, except these boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why? Well, when they were asked, like, hey, listen, did you misunderstand? Did you think I stuttered? No. We know exactly what you had to say. But we know the one true God. And you and your statue are not him. And we're not going to bow down. I'll throw you into that furnace. So be it. God could rescue us. And if he doesn't, we're not changing. We hold to a higher authority. And of course, we know that miraculous rescue that came out of that fiery day. Or in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were told, you stop preaching this gospel of Jesus. Did they? No. Why? because they're submitting to a higher authority. And if our government ever forced us to, as believers in Christ, to start killing preborn babies, euthanize adults, conduct homosexual or LGBTQ plus weddings, or to stop teaching the scripture, or top, stop calling sin, sin, or stop speaking of Christ and his gospel, we must say this, we in all respect have to say no because we're submitting to God and the higher authority. Our ultimate allegiance belongs to God. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't be patriotic. Don't think that, well, like, oh, well, like, if I am excited about my country or I I see my flag of my country flying and, and it evokes some emotion or I'm at a memorial and I see that flag and I might even have a tear in my eye that, well, I've forsaken my love for God and love for Christ. No. Remember this. God is the God of all the nations, right? You don't have to be um, someone that forsakes any uh, favor for your nation or respect or regard for your nation. You can be a good American or a good Filipino or a good Nigerian and have a strong allegiance to God. Because why? He is the God of all the nations. Do you remember what God told Abraham, Genesis chapter 12? I'm going to make you the father of many nations, right? Or you know how the Bible ends? It ends with the nations of the world, every people, tribe, tongue, coming and worshiping to the glory of God. Revelation chapter 5, 7, 21, all speak of the nations coming in with their glory to glorify the one true living God. Christianity isn't for America. Christianity is for every country. And that's what we see here. We give the right allegiance to the right places. Our ultimate Independence Day, though, is not symboled uh, by a flag. Our ultimate Independence Day is an Easter morning, and its symbols are a rugged cross and an empty tomb. That's where our ultimate freedom is found. And so we find here that they're asking this question, do we pay taxes to Caesar? Look what Jesus said, verse 17. You might want to put a mark by it. And Jesus said to them, you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Really, the question isn't, um, should we pay taxes? Really, the question is this, am I submitting to God's comprehensive rule over all things and over me. 
So if we've looked at our responsibility to human government, what is our responsibility to a holy God? One owes to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. He's got his image on that coin, his name. He wants it back. Give it to him. But you have God's image on you. You belong to him. It's his image likeness that separates us from everything else. There are all these animals, but they don't have the image of God. We are unique by divine design. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Here you have God, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In God's image. What does that mean to be created in the image of God? It means that in our humanity, we share aspects of God in a limited way. We are rational, moral, volitional, emotional, relational, just as God is. We have God's image in our, in our life, in our humanity, and we reflect that. And by the way, you know, for evolutionists, this is, this is the great mystery. They can't explain why is it that we have relational and uh, moral and rational and emotional and uh, ability to relate to people, to think and to have wisdom. Where does this all come from? Is it really just that just from eons and eons of evolution and just some sort of explosion of atoms that somehow come together and that we form our own basis of authority? I'll tell you, the only way we'll ever understand humanity is if we understand that we are created in the image of God, just as it's said in Scripture, because that is actually the truth. I want to ask you, do you really believe that you are the epitome of evolution? Do you think that? Do you think that you are the product of some sort of ancient cosmic explosion that has suddenly then given you all these abilities that you can't explain? Or do you believe that you have been created by God for God, that you were created in his image? The foundation of how you live is determined by how you respond to that question. You see, we're made in the image of God. Every human life is of immense value at every stage, the preborn, but at every stage, every people, every race. Why? Because we have been made in God's image. And so when we think of that, we're like, okay, we've been made in the image of God, but I want you to know the image of God in humanity has been distorted, and it was distorted by the fall of Adam and Eve when they engaged in sin and disobeyed and disregarded God the image of God was actually distorted. It wasn't removed, but it was distorted. Let me kind of give you a picture of what that looks like. So you ever uh, seen like a penny that is placed on a railroad track? Okay, now I'm not advising you that you do this, but I have seen pennies like this. And what you could do is if you put that on the railroad track, when the force of that train and all of, it weight, all of its weight goes over that penny, what happens is that penny becomes distorted, okay? And there's some examples of what that looks like. It's still a penny, but the image of Lincoln, why, it has drastically changed, okay? You can still get it, and you can kind of see it in some cases there, but things aren't quite the way they once were. Why? Because of the force of the train. And that is true of sin. Sin has brought great distortion to humanity. But here is the beauty of the glory 
of the good news of the gospel. That God in Christ has given us Jesus to not only absorb the penalty of sin, but to restore the image of God in his people. If you want a great text on this, and like Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, it says this, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. You see that? Being renewed to a true image. This is God at work. We're becoming more like Christ. He's restoring our moral values. He is filling us with a sense of right and wrong. He's giving character in our hearts, and we have eternity now set before us. All of this is God renewing us, restoring the image of God in his people. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. So I just want to ask you, what do you owe and what belongs to Caesar? Taxes, respect, obedience, prayer, right? But what is it that you owe to God? Render to God. What is it? The answer, all of yourself. I mean, think of it. Think of standing before Jesus, and he says, come here, whose image do you have? And you're like, well, I I have the, the image of God. Then that means that all things belong to him. Friends, do you know that in the United States, if you evade your taxes, if you don't pay the IRS what is owed, do you know that that is fraud and it's illegal and they can come after you? Why? Because you didn't pay what you owed. Now, I know you can kind of slide some things around and probably get away with not paying everything you owe the IRS. But I want you to know you can't do that with God because he knows all things and you've been created in his image. You owe him everything. And friends, this is where joy in Christ is found. When you see yourself as made in the image of God, that you've got real value, and you see everyone is made in God's image, you treat people differently. Racism goes away. Love, joy, helping people, wanting to care for folks, seeing humanity flourish. You're concerned and burdened by these things. That's what you want. So friends, I want to call you to invest your life for the glory of God. What is God calling you today? Don't think that, well, I'm just going to give myself to a seashell collection or a bunch of souvenirs or a collection of precious moments. Friends, don't waste your life. You've been made in the image of God, and you will find this, that when you invest yourself and give yourself, your finances, your future, your final decades of retirement, when you give of your focus, your family, your faith, and you give it all to God, God will accomplish his work in you and through you. He will be glorified and your life will be full. That's what you were designed for. You see, Christians who realize realize this, that everyone is made in the image of God. And if you realize that, you know what happens? Then you will give everything to the glory of God. Years ago, I heard John Maxwell uh, give a talk and, and he said something that has always stuck with me. He said, there are really two great days in a person's life. One the day that you're born, right? Happy birthday. Great day, right? And two, the day you discover why. Friends, this is why we're here. To know Christ, to live out the image of God, 
and to bring the gospel of the kingdom to the world. Friends, Jesus said this, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Let's pray. Lord.